Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast. This is not another podcast about the stock market. Instead, we focus on a rapidly evolving world of alts. The goal of this podcast is to provide original research and insights that empowers you to become a better alternative investor. With each episode, we hope to bring you along with us as we learn together. Thanks for joining. Now let's dive in. Opinions expressed on this podcast by the hosts and podcast guests are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Podcast hosts and guests may maintain positions in the offerings discussed in this podcast. All right. Hey, everyone. We are here with Brian and Chase, the uh, co-founders of Commonwealth. Commonwealth has created a new ownership model for horse racing. What used to cost about $10,000 now has an entry point of just $50 per share. That's right. You can buy shares of actual racehorses, and it's all done through their mobile app. Uh, you share in the horse's earnings and you get other cool benefits over time like stable visits and a whole bunch of cool stuff. We first profiled Commonwealth back in May of this year. And since then, they've had a ton of growth, a ton of stuff has changed, and we really look forward to hearing all about it. Today on the podcast, I've got myself and we've got our new podcaster, Horatio Ruiz. He's been an analyst for uh, alternative assets for the past two months. And this is his first podcast, and he's he's super excited to to join and to uh, to be the jockey on this this podcast. So welcome everyone, and uh, Horatio, uh, take it away, man. Thanks, Stefana. So good to do this. I'm really happy to, with Commonwealth, and because it's, it's one of one of the things I've always loved watching is horse racing. The big uh, triple crown races were like must watch when I was growing up, and uh, just this idea of being able to own a part of a horse was like so interesting just want to thank Brian and Chase for being here with us and to talk about their company a little bit. Basically, just want to get started. Like, How did you guys come up with this idea of uh, fractionalizing racehorses? Yeah. Yeah. It's the question we get a lot. Yeah. You asked, how did we meet? And that's that's kind of funny in itself. We actually grew up in the same town. Uh, I'm a little bit older than Chase, but we're both from a small town in West Michigan. And uh, I was very close friends with Chase's older sister. So we've known each other for a really long time. And this was kind of the first opportunity we had to, to work together or, or hook up on something. But going back to kind of the genesis of Commonwealth, it's really it's back in 2018. I mean, my background is all in kind of emerging business models and startups and growth phase companies, things like that. So really what I do is just keep my ear to the ground on things I think are interesting or you know applications of business models. And I'm a classic car guy, so Rally Road hit my radar in like 2018 when they had like two cars on the platform and were just figuring it out. And I just fell in love with the business, this idea of passion investing. It was more than just a return. There was just so it was such a rich idea um, that I started thinking about how else we could apply it. And you know, there was a lot of obvious ones that would jump off the page, but horse racing just felt so natural for this business model. There's already a ton of syndicates. I think they own 60 to 70% of horses in the U.S. anyway, uh, partnerships do. So it was just kind of everything sort of fit and was ripe. And I really didn't know a ton about horse racing. I'm a casual fan. I have been since like 2005 when I lived in Baltimore and went to the Preakness and all that stuff. But, you know, really, you know, it was, it was actually funny. Earlier that year, I was at Santa Anita for Easter and Chase and I traded some Instagram messages because he saw I was there and he's like, we got to get you in the game. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I would have no idea what I'm doing. 
And then about four months later, I'm writing him going, hey, uh, I actually have an idea for horse racing I would love to hear your thoughts on. And uh, the anecdote I always tell that I think is very flattering for Chase is that I send a lot of people business ideas. It's just kind of like what I do, you know, it uh, occupies my mind. And I sent Chase one of the longest and possibly most boring reads I've ever sent anybody. It was all SEC stuff. And I was telling him how this would work and all this. And he got back to me with a long list of questions like the next day. And he was like, this is incredible. I want to talk to you about this. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, from there it was, as you might expect, it was a lot of evenings, a lot of us just hammering it out, doing business model stuff. How would this work? You know, all that. And, um, you know, now it's been, what chase i guess two two and a half years and it has definitely been a journey that i don't think either of us could have predicted so it's been a lot of fun that's for sure yeah i brian always says that's flattering and i always i'm always never quite sure if it's flattering or not i jumped into some super dry stuff but i will say there are very few businesses that would make me look through sec documents with a particular level of excitement so this one was special and it was funny because you know as these things kind of happen when you're working on a startup or any project that you care about and kind of throw yourself into, time becomes kind of immaterial. You you forget how much time you spend on it. And I always go back. Brian reached out to me and I had just claimed my first racehorse a day before Justify won the Triple Crown. I Justify won the, the last leg of the Triple Crown, the Belmont, um, which is in New York. It's the longest race, the Triple Crown. And, you know, the thing that kind of holds so many horses back. And the day before he won, I bought a filly that was um, by the same sire and out of a out of a really nice mare. And so I, I snagged that filly, and we had started a worker, and we were planning on bringing her back to the racetrack. And that's when Brian slid into my DMs with this idea. So it was all just kind of there was something kind of fateful about about that year, uh, and, and it's been pretty fun, pretty fun to date. Um, definitely, definitely more than I think Brian and I ever could have imagined. We spent a lot of time thinking through and analyzing and, and, and peeling the, the layers, the, the incredible layers that are horse racing. Um, and yet we have, uh, continued to be surprised and excited. So yeah, it's pretty fun to, to look back on that stuff. Yeah. So is it fair to say then that Brian, you're kind of like the, I don't want to say behind the scenes guy, but. You're kind of doing the legal stuff and 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 all the, the a lot of the paperwork maybe and and Chase you're kind of more of like you know if you can delve a little bit into your background about with horses and how how long you've been involved with horses and and kind of like a perfect marriage right where uh, or a partnership I should say where Brian comes in with this uh, you know this idea with horse racing and and who better than than you who've been involved with horse racing you know practically all your life well I would say it is you know it is funny that you said marriage Brian and I always tease each other and I. I Ryan's wife teases me too. It is kind of like a marriage for better or for worse. <laughs> um, but no, it is that way. And it really is, a you know, it, 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 there's an incredible kind of symbiosis that Brian and I have. One thing that, you know, Brian has uh, brought tons of incredible things, this partnership. We really do have, you know, this, this great kind of complementary set of skills. Um, I'll let Brian speak to, to his background um, which is definitely far more than, you know, kind of paper pushing and legal regulatory kind of side of things. So my background is, you know, first and foremost, I'm a horseman. I started riding horses when I was four years old. And every year after that, just saw a kind of escalation of commitment to equestrian sports. My parents probably would have liked it. I, I grew up playing travel basketball, soccer, tennis, and uh, 
all those sports started to kind of drop off. And every year the horse commitments got more and more. I think my parents would have preferred soccer and basketball. It's like, hey, we got you some cleats. We got you a new ball. And instead it was like, you need a trailer, a saddle, and a couple horses. No problem. And uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those things. But they, what they say is it's like cowbell. The only solution for, for horses is more horses. So, you know, once it, it came time to get serious about, you know, professionally, I decided that I didn't want to let anybody own my passion. And so I went to school. Brian and I actually went to the same college in Michigan, Western Michigan University. Um, I went for sales and business marketing and uh, decided that, you know, I, I have always loved the advertising side of the world and the creative side. And so I went to sales and found myself as a digital strategist for a number of years and got to work with some of the world's largest brands on, on digital campaigns, specifically around video. And we did a lot of educational campaigns and things like that. And I, I loved it. And there, I always say there's very few things that could have pulled me away from that job, except for this one. And that's when uh, Brian reached out. And this this business has really allowed me to take my love for for creative, for building community, for serving people, and my love for horses and bring those two things together. And so that that's kind of my bend. And then, and Brian, feel free to jump in and chat about yours. Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, most of my career going about kind of 15 to 17 years now has been pretty deep in the tech and kind of VC communities of New York, San Francisco, and now I live in LA. And that kind of really ranges from the early kind of first five, six years of my career. I was in mergers and acquisitions. So we were selling companies, buying companies. Uh, for a period, I was at um, an advisory firm. And then I was at a company called IAC, which is a large digital uh, media conglomerate, which at the time I was there, we owned Ticketmaster, Home Shopping Network, Lending Tree, you know, Match.com, Vimeo. I mean, like the list just goes on and on. And so I was in their corporate strategy. And they had 80 to 100 businesses. And I was in their corporate strategy and uh, M&A group, which was really responsible for helping all the different business units drive strategy. Uh, and in some cases, that meant acquiring companies, investing in companies, corporate partnerships, you know, kind of deeper, longer term partnerships. And, uh, you know, that's really where I cut my teeth in emerging business models and startups and stuff like that. And then went to San Francisco and joined a mobile marketing company called Playhaven. I was the fifth employee first non-technical employee and really just broadly responsible for the entire business. Um, and we grew that to a couple hundred employees. You know, I joined pre-revenue and we went to about 50 million a year in revenue. And uh, at one time, our software, it's all used by mobile app developers, mostly games. So at one point, our software was in natively baked into about 80% of the top thousand apps in the world. It was quite a wild ride. I mean, that was a five, six year stretch of, you know, crazy growth, lots of fundraising. You know, we ended up merging with another company. That was really where, you know, I cut my teeth on running a company and managing large teams and, you know, what it takes to go from zero to one and then one to 10 and then 10 to 50 and like that. All of those things, how they change, how they morph, you know, from the very beginning to, to kind of scale, so to speak. After that, I was involved in a, a VR company called Modal VR that was actually founded by Nolan Bushnell, founder of Atari, amongst and Chuck E. Cheese, amongst a bunch of other businesses. And, uh, and that was a ton of fun. I mean, we were a little bit too early in that particular case. Um, that was probably four years ago. We had a pretty wild VR startup. I was there for a couple of years. And then uh, as I was kind of cycling out of that, you know, that's, that brings you to 2018, where I was just kind of just I loved the business model so much for so many different things. Yeah, so I'm kind of an end-to-end -end sort of, you know, 
startup and growth stage executive. So that's really what I bring to the table here. You know, it's a lot of, I mean, I, you know, what I always like to say to Chase is, you know, I kind of represent like the casual fan of the, of the partnership, you know, I mean, a lot of what we're doing with this tech, you know, there's a lot of ways you can get into horse racing. You know, most of them are very expensive, but very, very, very few of them, in our opinion, we think one of them uh, is intuitive and very easy and digital native and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, it's kind of a combo of like, you know, the business expertise and the guidance there. And then like, hey, let's make sure that the casual fan and just the everyday guy and gal can just, you know, just goes, hey, I'll, I'll throw 200 bucks at this horse. Let's see what this is about instead of feeling intimidated by it, which I think is one of the things that keeps a lot of people from horse racing. They just look at it and they go cross-eyed. So anyway, we have definitely been a great partnership and we do a lot of the like complimentary roles and stuff. So it's been good. And now, I mean, it's it's nuts now. We got eight horses, so I guess seven now. And uh, and yeah, it feels like we're racing every weekend. I mean, you know, Chase and I are like, what? like it's still just the two of us, you know, we have yet to hire. And so we kind of look at each other, we're like, well, this is what we wanted, even though our hair's on fire like eight days a week, you know? Yeah, I mean, how, how with that, I mean, you have this deep business background, right? And, and Chase, you had this, you know, this life with di- digital marketing and horses were in your background, but you still weren't involved in, in the business like like you are now. What is your day-to-day like? And we're going to get into the company. I also want to get into, you know, what you guys actually offer, but how have your lives changed and and what is it like to, to basically be running a stable of horses and then fractionalizing them? I mean, what are your day-to-day jobs? Yeah. I mean, mine, you know, like for, for this period, there's definitely a lot of talks with lawyers, brokers, auditors. I mean, the SEC compliance like maze is just... It's such a time sink. So for the moment, that's where, well, not for this moment, I suppose, but, you know, out of the year, you know, there's a solid percentage that would be devoted to that. You know, when we hire, that'll inevitably go to somebody else. But, and then other than that, I mean, it's a lot of it's strategy. We talk about horses a lot, of course. Um, You know, we we are headed toward a fundraise. We've raised a little bit of capital. We're mostly bootstrapped. We've done a small seed. Of course, we've done our big partnership with Windstar, which we can get into, but, you know, we are headed back toward a fundraise. So I've got in particular, have my eyes on that. But, you know, other things like as an example, you know, we talked to different track operators about getting live racing into our app, you know, before too long, right? So like, you're, you know, there's just there's all kinds of stuff like that, you know, that you wouldn't think of, but it's just, you know, you're constantly exploring new products and new ideas and stuff. And for me, in terms of my day to day, I mean, we I have a, another company, my wife's got a retail business and stuff. So like kind of business management and all that stuff is sort of what I do anyway. So this is just like, made it go from like, I was already maybe too busy to now I'm like extremely way too busy. So, uh, you know, this is what I do for, for sport, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And mine, I, I always like to say, uh, for, a for a role that is based in the stable, it's, I've, I've never found one that's so unstable. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, it's awesome. You know, one of the, one of the things that that's really fun is that a lot of my time is spent, um, and has to be spent at the barn. So, Oftentimes, one thing that's really fun about the racehorse industry is that it starts really early. And so, you know, on a day that I go to visit our horses um, to do content, to create some updates for our users and to really just check in with the training team, too, because so much of this industry, so much of this business is about making sure that we're managing the talent that we have and we're pointing them to the place that they can be the most successful. There's a lot of great racehorses that have been managed to greatness right? What they lack in natural talent, 
the team has made up for with just great management strategies, making sure that they're paying attention to the rest of the landscape. And so much of that, you know, like anything, it's about being present and being around and understanding what's happening and kind of keeping your ear to the to the grindstone and, and listening for, you know, some signal on, on things like, man, I, I really hear that the two-year-old division is light in California. And that's, you know, for instance, that's a, a scenario that played out for us. And we decided to acquire a Philly uh, to send out to California. And it, it worked out really well, by the way, because we've got a large user base in California that needed a horse. So anyway, I begin my mornings, you know, uh, we'll go down to the farm and sometimes we'll watch our horses work in the dark, especially now that the time change is happening here in the States that, you know, we're starting to fall back. So one of our top Colts country grammar is a multiple graded stakes winner and just an, an excellent Colt. He's working in the mornings right now at about 7 a.m. when it's dark. So what I'm doing with him is I watch, you know, I watch him go out and his rider's got a light, a little kind of node that sits on the side of his helmet. And so I watch that go around the track, you know, the, the one, one and a quarter mile track. And so um, that's how we're watching. We're starting to see, okay, we're seeing his fractions. We're watching that. We're hearing about how a horse is holding up to the rigors of training, maybe mentally, maybe physically strategizing around that. And then, you know, basically the morning is over by 9 a.m. with the racehorses. We get a full morning of, of works in by 9 a.m. And then it's moving on to community management, getting our, you know, we've got um, several thousand users. We've got users in 14 countries, actually, I think now 16. We just added a new user from South Korea, our first user in South Korea, got them all over Europe and then 49 states in the United States. And most of these people are beginners. So they've got a lot of questions, which is natural. You know, that's what we invite into this thing. So as hard as we work to make it clear and make things meaningful, there's always uh, something missing. So it's it's really important to us that we connect with the community to make sure that people people feel like they understand what's going on and they feel connected to what's happening. And then, of course, you know, Brian and I strategizing product. We're still early in this kind of product development. We love where our digital product's at now, but we also have, you know, big plans for this platform and what we think that it can offer, you know, casual fans and, and even in even lifers. Right. So uh, there, there's no shortage of activity. Part of it's horsing around and the other part is uh, kind of being chained to a desk and making sure that we are we're innovating and that we're serving our users, you know, as quickly and as best we can. Chase, great job with these puns, man. I've noticed at least a few horsing around. You're on the ball, man, really. One thing I learned that was interesting, I didn't realize you have users that are international. So the Commonwealth is open to to anyone in the world. Is that is that correct? That's right. Yeah, we have we have a bunch of users from Australia and New Zealand, by the way. And we just added another, I think Sweden was the other country that we just added a user from. But we've got users all over the UK and Ireland, of course. We have we've got users in Dubai, Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty fun. And uh, I actually just had uh, an email conversation with somebody in like rural Japan. And this guy, Hanjun Lee asked, he said, Hey, look, I I really want to do this, but I'm having a problem with my credit card because the local credit card company is not understanding this foreign transaction. And Brian and I are just like shaking our heads, laughing. We're like, this is so cool. Like who knew we'd be trying to get this guy in rural Japan to be able to be you know, an owner of a racehorse here in the States. It's pretty awesome. That, that is pretty awesome. Uh, and it just speaks to kind of like how far, I mean, how far, I guess your message is spread, right? And how you guys, how, how, how much of a reach you can, you have, right? Potentially. 
you talk about managing a team, right? And looking at some of the horses, like in terms of the offerings, is it more than just picking out the right horse or is it also kind of like being at the, you know, the right place at the right time and um, maybe having, you know, that team, like you said, jockey trainers, what is your philosophy behind choosing the horses and putting out a product out there that, you know, that has that reach for people that are, you know, wanting to join the, the, the site? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. It, the act of choosing a great racehorse is, it's a risky business. You know, the, the difficulty of, of selecting a great racehorse can't be understated. And that's something that we're very clear about. Now, I will say that, you know, we're very proud of our Bloodstock team. And, and for those that aren't familiar with the word Bloodstock, Bloodstock agent is a lot like a sports agent. They're there to scout talent. And we truly have some of the best in the business. We have a female Bloodstock agent that's been with us for since the beginning. Her name's Marette Farrell. Marette actually trained and worked with a very famous Australian trainer named Gay Waterhouse. So Marette spent quite a bit of time in Australia. She's, she's worked internationally. She's from Ireland. It was an international athlete. She played lacrosse and field hockey. And she has an impeccable record and is, you know, one of our top bloodstock agents. Then we also work through our strategic partnership with Windstar Farm. And Windstar has, you know, selected horses like Justify, the Triple Crown winner, among lots of other, you know, Breeders' Cup kind of grade one winning, you know, breeding stallions and mares. So we've got this really incredible team, but it really has to start with the strategy has to begin with the question of where is it that you want to race? And what are you trying to accomplish? It's not as simple as just saying, well, we're going to go buy as nice a horse as possible because that's a bit limiting. And so, you know, like I said before, if, if you want to win the Kentucky Derby, then basically what you're saying is we want to buy a colt or a male horse that can run a mile and a quarter, right? And we are probably going to look at certain pedigrees. And we're going to look at a certain type of physical. And so you start to narrow down because otherwise you're looking at thousands of horses and it's kind of like getting a needle in a haystack. So as soon as you start to crystallize and, uh, and solidify that strategy, it really starts to inform what you're looking for. So in this case, you know, our most recent, one of our most recent purchases, I got a gal, very special filly that we have racing uh, in California. When we chose I got a gal, Marette Farrell picked her out. And we said, hey, we want a filly that can compete on the West Coast. The West Coast filly division was pretty light. And fillies can be very lucrative because it's much more likely that a filly or a female horse goes on to have a breeding career than it is a male. Sorry, fellas, if you were a racehorse, the, the chances are that you would never have a breeding career. Why is that? I would think it's the opposite. Yeah, so the fact is, is that, you know, People are very selective about stallions. You know, probably 10, year, 10, 20 years ago, if you won a graded stakes race, you could probably be a stallion if you had a decent pedigree, you know? Now you really have to be the top of the top. You have to show incredible speed. You have to show incredible talent. You got to have a great pedigree. You got to look great. So basically what I'm saying is you got to look like an Instagram model. You got to have a LinkedIn profile that looks like, you know, Bezos or Musk. And you also have to be you know, genetically special. <laughs> so the days of Seabiscuit are gone, you know? <laughs> That's right. Well, yeah. So what's interesting about it though, is that when you can select those colts that are special, you get top dollar for them. And so when we choose a colt, that's really what we're playing for. We think of it like startup investing, right? 
There are going to be a lot of horses that don't make that. By the way, they can still be lucrative and they can still be a lot of fun. But if you can find a colt, you find a unicorn, typically speaking. So back to my, my comment about the filly. These fillies are more likely to go on to a breeding career. So even a, even a filly with a middling career will have some residual value after her racing career. And, you know, whether you sell her for 20, 30, 40, 50, even $100,000, you can, you know, you might have a couple hundred thousand dollar filly that still goes on to sell for something. If you can get a graded stakes win, you could sell a filly for $500,000, million plus very easily. And you see that happen a lot. So what we liked about this filly is we said, hey, because the division out in California is light, we get a special filly. We get some what we call black type on her. And we could probably have a pretty lucrative uh, deal here and have a lot of fun doing it for our users in California. So that's that's kind of one of those strategies. That's then, so then you start to work from there that, to go, okay, we've got the pedigree that says it can do this. We've got a physical. So looking at her body, these clues kind of tell us, hey, you know, she looks like she'll go long or she looks fast. She looks like she'll be able to handle the rigors of training. And all of these inputs kind of come together. Um, and, and in a different episode, we can really dive into those because there's they're, they're, there's a lot of them and they're interesting. But ultimately, we're taking that checklist and kind of working backwards to say, OK, yeah, this this fits the profile. We think we have a spot for. Now let's go execute on that. Make sure that we get her for the right price. One thing that we say in horse racing is we like to be disciplined and opportunistic. So it's very easy to go spend. There's a lot of billionaires in this sport and you can let ego get the best of you. And so one thing that we love about our model is that we have a fiduciary duty to represent our clients and get them the best deals that we can and put forth something, you know, that, that makes sense. And Brian and I are both very serious about that. And so you start to do that. And, you know, we've seen it with our, our partners, Winstar. They are, they're, they're very conservative with their buys. You know, they're aggressive, but they don't spend money to spend it. And what you see with that is you start to see that discipline uh, pan out with, you know, you get the right horse, the right trainer, the, the right landscape, the right kind of uh, opportunity. And you see a lot of success that can happen. You know, it's funny you say that. I mean, in terms of being that fiduciary duty, right? Because in order for you to be successful, right, I, you, you need to put out the best possible product that you can. And I, I would imagine that with who your users are, or maybe who might be investing, you know, putting in a couple hundred dollars, they put a little bit of trust that, you know, the experts are, are putting the best possible product that they can in front of me, right? Like, so all these fractional sites, whether they're, you know, experts in, in wine or, or sports collectibles or whatever the case is, there's a certain level of trust that, you know, hey, you're presenting to me something that, that should be in essence, you know, there's no guarantees, of course, but that I know you've done your research, you've done your work, and I feel comfortable investing in it. Have you gotten, you know, the, I guess it's a two-pronged question. Have you gotten uh, any sense of who it is that's currently investing uh, on your platform? Are, are they, you know, horse, you know, aficionados, or is it kind of just uh, some people that are interested in the platform? No, we've actually, we have an incredible user base. We have a lot of, uh, our user base trends younger. We've, you know, and I, when I say younger, you know, 30s to uh, mid 40s. We've got plenty of people in the in the kind of 50s as well. Um, but from some of our other cohort, you know, we've seen a, a nice young user base, and we've got tons of casual fans. A lot of the people uh, we've just recently started to press into the horse community, and so we we've kind of just started to trend away from like total uh, beginner or total casual fan people that are like, man, I've never done this. 
But one one thing that I, I don't think that Brian and I have stressed enough that, that we're really proud of, and then I'll, I'll let Brian speak to kind of our business model um, a bit, but I think this is worth mentioning is that when we set this business model up, because it's different than you know the traditional alternative asset that is waiting on asset appreciation, we do have asset appreciation you know, in these racehorses, and it's actually something we're working on building into the product. When a racehorse, if a racehorse goes on to win, I mean, racehorse valuations fluctuate like you can't believe. And uh, we want a way to capture that. But the point that I was getting to is that we set up the business model so that we win and lose together. So alongside our users, Commonwealth doesn't can't exist just by selling horses. You know, our business model doesn't flourish just because we sell horses to people. And the thing that we said when we began this exercise in 2018 was Brian said this perfectly, said we should align interests. That was Brian's line that I've, I've continued to steal and I'll continue to keep doing it. But we wanted to align interests so that we could say with confidence, hey, not only are we confident in the horses that we're putting out, but we're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to make sure that our business model is tied to your success. So I think that's really important because this is different than, you know, most the, the, the more traditional alternative assets, which is kind of a funny thing to say. But it, it, I do think that that's important and, and worth mentioning. Just to add to that real quick, because it's a really interesting point. So th- there's no question that the, the big fractionalization platforms are putting out quality goods. That's not the, uh, the issue. I think the issue sometimes comes with, you know, how they value them, right? And what the market well, capitalization the- is on these alts. And uh, it's a lot easier, I think, to, it's still difficult, but it's a lot easier to value, uh, you know, like a sports card versus value a horse. If you can kind of tell us a little bit about how you think about, you know, pricing and, and, and essentially valuation, I guess, market capitalization of these horses. How much does each horse cost? Is it, you know, how, how do you figure out what the share price is? How do, you, how do you approach that? Well, real quick, and I'll let Brian jump into how we start to, you know, factor out share price and things. It's very clear. But I'll say this. It's not to say that we'll never buy horses in the private market. But in general, our horses come from public auctions. And horse racing has public it's, auction data. So we can so much data. Yeah. And it's great. So we can point right to it and say, hey, look, this is where our market cap comes from. We bought the horse for $250,000. And that's what you are. You know, that's how we're valuing the horse. And then Brian can get into how we how we actually break that down and stuff. But it it's beautiful for us. And by the way, I want to say my comment was definitely not directed at alternative assets. It was more about, you know, there are some private syndicates that they make a lot of money just by selling the horse. So whether the horse kind of does well or not, if they get the thing sold, they're going to make a lot of money. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the public auction data and the stud data, the breeding data and the racing data was actually one of the things that I loved about horse racing is that you could just peel the thing apart. When you think about laying a platform over it, that's ideal. You know, you have all this publicly available information. So it was actually one of the first kind of green lights that I got to kind of in my early process. But um, in terms of market cap and valuations and stuff, I mean, we try to lay it out fairly well in the app. I think Chase and I would both agree, like we could maybe do it a little better and we're working on that, you know, in our subsequent versions and stuff. But there are some kind of quirks to the thing. And the main one that I would point out is uh, when you see the valuation of our offering, the conclusion might be you're valuing the horse at that only. And that's actually not fully correct. It is correct, but not fully correct. So 
within our offerings, we've basically got three buckets. We've got the horse acquisition costs. We've got two years of preloaded training costs, working capital, which goes into a bank account that is for that, you know, that series, that horse, that offering only. And then of course we've got expenses and fees, which we try to center around like the 15 to 20%, including legal and just all that stuff. We try to get it all done for, you know, sub 20%. But, you know, so when you invest, like for instance, Bico, our offering kind of values him right about $150,000. Well, the horse inside of that is valued at about twenty-five dollars to $30,000. The working capital is, in this case, 75% of $120,000 because it's sixty dollars a year. We actually do a little higher than that. Uh, call it seventy-five dollars a year of carrying cost for the entire horse. So then in Biko's case, we own 75%, so we multiply everything by 75 And so really what you're left with after your investment is not only the horse, but it's also two years of runway. So the comparison of investing in our offering versus going to the auction and buying a horse is not the same, even though some people, you know, that when they come to us, they don't totally realize that because it would be like going auction price plus front loading all of these uh, training costs. So I think of it more like we're pricing it at that valuation. It's basically a cost basis um, because it's the cost of the carrying costs and the cost of the horse. And so you're getting it at that number without ever having to put another dollar in. And we get basically two years of, of let's see what we can do with this thing, I guess, for the you know lack of a better word, you know, it's, it's our shot. So, you know, I think the short answer to the question is we let public auctions guide where we're at. And then we add costs if we have to, um, you know, pre-offering. And then we layer in working capital. And then our fees are, we take 15% of the asset value, not the offering costs. Some of our competitors do 15% of total offering, which gets pretty spendy pretty fast. Or not spendy, I, I think of it just as, as a, it's kind of a heavy load on the offering. And you know, we try to keep our total fees and expenses, including those that we pass on to lawyers, brokers, auditors, all that stuff. We try to keep our total below 15 or 20%. And ours typically shakes out to like seven to eight percent. It's fifteen of the asset. The asset's usually forty to fifty percent because we don't take fifteen percent on the training costs. We don't take fifteen percent on any of the fees or anything like that. So that's how it's all built up. Um, and when you start talking about rates of return, it gets really interesting because it actually depends on when these things happen. And if you know, if if we were to go, let's say, buy a two year old, and we front load let's say we're half. And so we front load like 80 K of costs. That might be a hundred something thousand dollar offering 150, let's say a thousand dollar offering. If it goes pops a couple early races and we get a crazy offer to sell the horse, which is not uncommon. If you get a good two-year-old, you know, the return on that would just be ridiculous because we would also be returning all of the training capital. So it would be like, well, we only got six months in. So you're going to get 75% 75% of this training capital back and we just, you know, 30x the value of the horse. Where if you were to do that exact same scenario, you 30x that horse, but you do it at the end of the 2 years, we have no training capital to give back because it took us to ex- expending that. So we have these like That's multiple curves on our rate of return, which is not making it easy for me and us to like really, you know, clearly lay out, but but it is a real dynamic and you know, I, well, we've been, I've been trying to tell people, especially kind of my friends that are really casual on this is like, don't think of it like investing just in a horse. Think of it <laughs> investing like 
an operating company that's going to go out and try to pull something off over the next couple of years. But it's only for two years. That's the critical mm -hmm. thing I'm trying to understand here. So to, to get really in the numbers, like we understand yep. that you, you know, you're baking two years worth of care yep. and training costs directly into each offering. So, you know, unlike syndicates, the investors don't have to worry about bills or fees or training or anything like that. But what happens after two years? That's critical because that's an ongoing cost that you're not accounting for. Well, the short answer is Commonwealth would eat anything. But what we would actually do, you know, is we're going to do secondary offerings. So ah. with about six to 12 months left, you know, and and if we really got deep on this, which I'm happy to do here since we can edit, <laughs> uh, if we really got deep on this, there's, there's really only a handful of scenarios this happens. If it feels like it's a more real scenario, but because and also because two years isn't a super long window. First, within two years, most horsemen looking at Chase would tell you, you pretty much know what you got. So if we're at the end of two years, there's really kind of three scenarios. The horse has done well. In that case, we don't need to raise any money because the thing's just, just doing great. The horse is doing really not well. Uh, in that case, we're probably just going to try to move on and, and cut losses. We're not going to try to raise more money and you know keep banging our heads against the wall. Um, and then you've got this kind of middle scenario, which is like the horse has done okay. There's things we like. And you know the team gets some conviction around the horse you know, for whatever reason that may be. And in that scenario, you know, six to nine months out, it takes us two to three months to turn these things around, maybe less, you know, when we get it really dialed in, call it two months. So, you know, six to nine months out, we would go, hey, guys, like, you know, we're either be forced to move on. We don't really want to do that. The team has a lot of conviction about this horse. And so we're proposing, you know, in this case, it would only be training capital. So we don't have to buy the horse again, of course. So we would go, let's do another year. So that, you know, then at that point, we really know and we shouldn't be going into the fourth year on a horse that isn't, you know, panning out. That would seem really silly. Real quick to that point. I just want to tell you guys a quick story to, to bring that scenario to life just real fast. Our bloodstock agent, Moret selected a horse for uh, someone named Zypesa. Zypesa was a mare and at two years old, she did nothing. At three years old, she was kind of slow going. She wasn't quite ready. They did a little, she won like two little races and kind of came last. They're like, eh, but they had confidence that she needed to go a little bit longer. They're like, it's worth continuing to go. They bought this mare for $67,000. Okay. Going into her four-year-old year, she won, I don't know, probably she raced probably eight times raced one more time, I think in the Breeders' Cup was her final race. She ended up earning $783,000. Now remember, to our point before, she would have come to kind of the end of her training capital and it would have been going, that would have been the moment that we said, okay, no, we have conviction. And, and it's, it's pretty clear when you have conviction when you don't. Oftentimes, you'll find this out and you'll know this before the two years is even close to being up. But they had conviction. They waited. They did it. She won $783,000. They bred her. So she ran in the Breeders' Cup on 11-4, 2017. And uh, they put her in the um, sale. And they no-sailed her for $925,000, threw a baby in her. And the next year, they sold her for $1.25 million. 
So that's the kind of reason that you would have, the conviction that you would have to go, no, no, it's worth staying on. We see something here. Yeah, those moments do happen. But to get kind of back to the mechanics of it, I mean, basically, we get into that scenario where we go, hey, we still have this conviction about this horse, but the working capital is running out. We would do a secondary offering through the SEC of call it, you know, if we own half the horse, we'd add another year and we'd go, okay, that's 40K, you know, for our 50%. And existing shareholders would have a right of first refusal. They don't technically legally, it's not in the documents, but that's how we're going to execute. And that's how we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do these. We're going to say, Hey, you can, you know, we believe in this horse. Here's the pitch. Here's the story. We would love to have you come in for your original um, amount. And if not, anything that doesn't get bought goes out to the general public and maybe even back to the investors that did buy back in and say, Hey, you can buy more if you'd like. And so just kind of shake it out that way. And that's really how we maintain that you'll never have to put another dollar in if you don't want to. There may be scenarios where more dollars are needed, but you will never be on the hook for having to yeah. put in. So so going to what Stefan was saying, so you got those those two years baked in. What's the ideal scenario for an investor, right? They put in, say, $1,000 of, of, of worth of shares in. What would be the ideal scenario for an investor to kind of see, you know, hey, this was this was good for me. You know, this was a good return. Yeah. What would the, those two years of, of the horse's career look like? It's a good question, honestly. And it's one that, you know, we keep trying to nail down. Everybody's different. You know, some people come to this thinking returns. Some people come to this thinking experience and lifestyle. And, you know, in reality, of course, it's some kind of a mix. But, you know, if I was to answer that, answer that kind of on my own personal level, I would come to it with eyes wide open and I would go, hey, there are like, lottery type returns here, but it's not super common. And so, you know, I would go into it going, Hey, if this horse can give me X number of races, hopefully some wins and, you know, maybe make a little bit. I personally think of like, take me to different parts of the country. Like I'm the guy that would go, my horse is going to race in Miami three times this winter. Like give me a reason to fly to Miami and have fun with my friends. You know what I mean? The Melbourne cup is, uh, is, is, is uh, in a few days. Come on down to Australia. We'd love to have you. We've always kicked it around and Commonwealth will definitely take us to Australia and the Melbourne cup. But this unfortunately is not the year. Yeah. I mean, horse race culture here is, is so huge and it's, it's amazing. Like actually how, how much bigger I think uh, the horse race culture is in Australia, even compared to the yeah. U S which is pretty crazy. But uh, totally. so, you know, I think one of the things that I like what you guys are, are doing is, you know, you, you're trying to bring together people through, you know, the app, but you're, you're doing more than that. You're trying to build like a community of, um, you know, racehorse fans and aficionados alike. And you're setting up some things where, you know, the, the fractional owners can attend events. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because that's that really brings everything to life for me. Really cool. Absolutely. We said from the beginning, we wanted to make sure we thought that it was important that fans and users could could have the Commonwealth experience regardless of where they live, because there's plenty of people that don't live near racetracks. Right. And so we've we've we're working hard to make sure that the digital experience is kind of just as fun and exciting as the in-person experience. So if you don't live near a racetrack, what happens is, you know, we'll talk race day because that's really what all roads lead to race day. That's where everybody wants to be. That's where everybody wants to get. And, you know, the updates kind of along the way are fun and we'll have plenty of different things uh, like that. You can get plugged in, but race day is where it's at. And so if you're not uh, near a track, you can't get there. What we do is we have a, a an owner's only text thread. You never get marketed to on this thread. It's only for race days. And it begins at, let's say, 8 a.m. And it's like, hey, gang, today's race day. As a reminder, 
your horse is going to you know leave the starting gates at 5 p.m. here at Keeneland in Lexington, you know, race number five. Get ready for you know for all the, the all the action of 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 the day. And then, you know, we're there live. And so we we send an update from the backside and you get to see your horse before the race. And then when your horse comes into the paddock and they're strutting their stuff, you get a little video of that. And then we show you when the rider, your jockey's getting thrown up. We'll do a little jockey interview. And then we'll do a little video walking out behind your horse through the tunnel out onto the track. And then we send you the live racing link. And you jump on and you take the ride with us. You know, we're trying to do so that it feels like you're there, right? And then in person, just this week, we had two races and they were here in Lexington. So I hosted everybody. And I think we had, gosh, probably... And by the way, it was kind of like a rainy race day, uh, both days, both Thursday and Friday. It was kind of rainy and cold. We still had probably 30 owners um, at the track with us. We were cheering, you know, we were in the paddock together. There are certain parts of race day that we can't guarantee to all owners, especially, you know, on a bigger day, some things are limited, but regardless of the level of ownership that you have, you can always come watch your horse race. If your horse wins, you can come into the winner's circle And as somebody who's done this for a long time, I can tell you one thing. There's nothing like cheering on your own horse in a race. Absolutely nothing. I mean, Brian and I have seen some great horse racing. We've been there for it. We've been in the suites at the Kentucky Derby. Like we've checked the bucket list off. Man, there is nothing like watching your horse barrel down the stretch. I don't care if they're in fifth place. Like it just having a horse in the race, it it makes all the difference in the world. You know, I mean, just compared to other investment types, right? Like, yeah, it's fun watching a stock go up or it's fun watching, you know, you know, your real estate, I guess, value go up. But yeah, I mean, compared to a horse race, a whole nother level, like you said. You know, one of our Colts, Country Grammar, mentioned him before in the episode. Country Grammar is taking some time off, but is getting ready to come back, hopefully for the $3 million Pegasus Cup in Miami, actually, at Gulfstream Park. And then we're hoping to send him on to kind of the Super Series in the Middle East, the either the Saudi World Cup, which is $20 million, or the Dubai World Cup, which is $12 million. And so I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm an excitable guy, but I'm not, I've never really been a screamer at, at events. This sport has made me a screamer. <laughs> Full stop. I got my hand raised. I am a I'm a screamer now. And man, when we watched Country Grammar in that race, so if you can just ride along with me for a minute, you've got Country Grammar coming down the stretch with Flavian Pratt, a uh, top rider, absolutely incredible. And you've got big money Mike Smith on a horse named Royal Ship. These are he's a really nice gelding from Brazil. And these two come around the turn and it's just them. They're alone. You've got the other, the fields behind them. It's like the, you know, you've got the boys and the men and the men are out front and Royal ship bumps into country grammar. Okay. There's two types of horses in this world. There's horses that they get bumped in and they falter and they run back. And I guess people too. And there's others that that dig in and run harder. Country grammar got bumped into and he grit his teeth and put his ears back and he barreled down and absolutely just fought down that stretch to grab the win at the wire. And it was wow. out of this world exciting. You know, and then of course we we let him in. It's a the the Hollywood Gold Cups, a storied race. Some some great, great racehorses have 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 won it. It's I mean it's about a seventy thousand dollar gold trophy 
And it just was freaking awesome. And Brian and I were sitting there. We we did an interview, uh, and you know you could you could hear our voice across Santa Anita. And we were like, we started this business so that we could invite all of the people that are up there in the stands. You know, they say a racehorse is the only animal in the world that can take thousands of people for a ride all at the same time. And we have found that to be especially true. We just want to update it to say, you know, it could take millions of people for a ride at the same time. That's amazing. I mean, to think that, you know, somebody who's putting maybe a couple hundred dollars can almost, you know, can come almost feel like, like a, I don't know, a big time yep. owner, you know, at the track and, and to, and to stand there and say, let's say your horse wins and to stand at the, the, the winner circle, if, if that's possible, that must be the coolest feeling in the world. Well, let me, let me tell you, yes. Let me tell you one more quick, quick story. This is pretty fun. So I've always said that horses are a great equalizer, um, especially when you're riding them. But it's, you know, even in this case, and the, the, the beauty of it is, is that, you know, they say that horses are the sport of kings and which we want to, we want to change that narrative in and of itself. But we were up at Saratoga this year and we were watching horses race. And I looked around me and I saw to my left, to my right, and the four guys sitting behind me, all billionaires. And we had a user with us who had 50 bucks in a horse. <laughs> One of the guys bet us that his horse would beat, would beat us. He bet another, another billionaire guy. It was like pretty funny. And the guy's like, I don't bet. And so I turned around and I said, I'll bet you a hundred bucks. Our <laughs> horse beats your horse. And he doesn't know who I am. Like, that's the beauty. Like I've literally seen sheiks reaching over the thing to like hug this random dude with a beer because they're just cheering on. And it's like, that's something special that you can't get anywhere else. It doesn't matter if you own a $50 share or you own, you know, a $50 million stable, you are there. You've got the same, you, you've got a horse in the race and there's one winner who gets to cross the line and all bets are off when they leave those gates. Like we're all the same. In your mind, wh where does all of this fit in the the uh, realm of, you know, investing versus gambling, right? Like two ends of the spectrum. Like wh where does wh where does Commonwealth sit in, the, in that uh, spectrum? I think we think of it as, a, I mean, it, within horse racing particularly, and I suppose any other sport, but particularly within horse racing, it's a companion product. I mean, well, well one, I mean, I, I think it probably goes without saying to your, your guys' audience, but it is fully an equity investment. This isn't gambling at all. You know, we're not on the gambling side of the of the picture. But you know, we have a lot of you know longtime you know horse players that they think of it like a mixture. They think of it like they're still going to be placing their bets because you get that immediate payment and you get that immediate feeling. But the long game of ownership and all the stuff you get to see in between, and I mean, I think a lot of what Chase was just talking about with the excitement and the feelings you get. I think a lot of it comes from being involved in between the races and seeing how hard it is and how much, you know, horsemanship goes in and just all this, the, the right factors that have to come together. And you definitely don't get that with gambling. You know, with gambling, even if you're a casual fan, you're betting on names, you're betting on strides, like you're just kind of guessing. And then the moment that race is done, you don't care about that horse anymore. You don't really care where it's going or what its next moment may be. And so with investing in ownership within horse racing, I, I think of them as companion products. And, and there's a lot of data out there that shows owners gamble on their horses. So the wagering outfits, the track operators, all those folks, they love what we're doing. And they love that we're trying to bring more people to the sport because, you know, people bet on it. So 
I think the industry sees them complementary, uh, especially with our use case. And then I think even on the user level, they're pretty complementary. You know, they're, they're different products. One thing we always like to say is, you know, if you're already gambling on horses, why not invest in some where your losses are tax deductible? <laughs> so <laughs> unless you're a professional gambler, you know, you can't deduct your losses. Where here it's capital gains, capital losses, at least in the U.S. I'm not, you know, a tax expert anywhere really but certainly not around the world and you know if you've got stock gains which a lot of us do at the moment and if you've got crypto gains or any of these things you know like you can we send you a 1099 at the end of the year just like any other investment account would and their capital losses you can use those to offset capital gains and, and other types of income so again i, I think it's complimentary and i think it, it actually opens up a lot of people's eyes to a different side of the sport you know i you did a great job of you know taking us through your your thought process the the, the company and, and and how you guys operate and you know if i if i can say so it's really impressive and you guys have done your due diligence and um i guess i guess uh, you know the the last question would be what's next for you guys what are you looking for in the next you know let's say i don't know if you can 6 6 to 12 months and what would you say to somebody that you know isn't an investor and and is looking for something to kind of put their money in and 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 you know and let's say you have them in front of you you know you know, what's next for Commonwealth, you know, kind of 12, 24 out and stuff like that. I mean, we've got a number of things in mind. You know, we're going to go deeper into horse racing, offer more products. We've certainly got trading on our horizon. I think that's a pretty natural evolution of, of these types of platforms. And, and you know, nobody's done it in racing. And I think nobody's, certainly nobody has done it the way we would do it. I think we could use a little more liquidity and a little bit more volume. But it offers, uh, you know, you want to talk about gambling and uh, investment again. I mean, I think even once you launch trading, now you have shorter timelines and stuff. And so you start to, you know, get some of that gambling feeling as well in terms of the, the quick kind of dopamine hit, so to speak. You know, so we're really just thinking, I mean, we, we've got eight horses now and we're just trying to basically nail horse racing. I mean, we, we think about other sports and things like that, but we have our hands full with horse racing at the moment. So 2022 will be about kind of V2 product. We're thinking about Android trading, you know, just kind of bulking it up. And I think there's a lot of kind of user experience stuff that we're going to be doing as well. I mentioned live racing earlier. We're going to tighten up a lot of the experience so that our app is kind of your, your source for all the information. It's, it's a great app, by the way. I mean, oh, just, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I, yeah. We've worked really hard on that and, you know, it's something we felt was really missing, uh, was something that a digital native would, you know, at Chase likes to say, a digital native would share, you know, I mean, there's, there's apps and then there's things that you tell your buddies about. Um, and we wanted to be one of those. We think we've got it, but we also know we have a lot of work to do. So anyway, stuff like that. I mean, you know, we're at the beginning of this journey. We, we've, we've done a lot of cool things with our tech, but there's a lot of runway for our technology. So so yeah, I think that's most of it. And then Chase, uh, you know, how how would you if there was a user that you were trying to sell? I would love to hear this. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the things that we laughed about is when we, you know, when we set out to do this, and I think this is probably a symptom of any kind of design process. It's I always like to tell people, my 86-year-old grandpa used to ride his horse to the grocery store to get bread and milk for his family. And he's now using his iPhone to buy racehorses and can do it in less than five minutes. That's a real badge of honor for us. I mean, that horse country grammar, he sold out in less than 90 minutes this year. Brian and I, 
there's this summer. Brian and I opened the window for a, just a couple minutes. We're like, let's let a couple people in. We're going to get it tested. And it was like the floodwaters. And we were like, well, I guess we have to tell everybody. And so we sent out an email. My grandpa got in a push notification. My grandpa got the push notification in his recliner. And he's probably like watching Wheel of Fortune or something. Who knows? And he got in there, bought his shares. We had all these people who were up in arms because they're like, it's not fair. We didn't get in there. It wasn't easy. I'm like, hey, guys, look, y'all are like 30, 40. My 86-year-old grandpa bought the shares. And so, you know, we love that. But now we've got, we want to switch over to figuring out how do we unify the experience? So like Brian said, there's, there's one place. You know, the other thing is we've got a really awesome audience and that's interesting for other businesses, for advertisers and things. And we're not going to do the lazy route of going like, okay, we're going to advertise to our users. We're like, how can we add some gamification uh, to the experience so that, you know, you can earn badges and things for attending races. You could win prizes. You could, there's so much of that. It's, it's possible. And, and we just think makes the experience a lot more fun, Right. Learning is actually really fun in this sport. One of the things that was most surprising to us, um, and by the way, this is true of our like younger audience, like some of our millennial audience, which I guess isn't actually the younger. I'm like, as a millennial, I'm like, I guess I'm like dating myself because we're not the younger audience anymore. But uh, like, let me pluck this gray hair out of the back of my neck. But one of the things that we found is they're like really interested in learning. They're like, man, this, it's fascinating to learn more about these horses. Because like, honestly, guys, as the, you know, I always tease, I'm like, as the, as the horse nerd here, like, I'm, I'm just kind of like, man, a lot of these people don't want to hear anymore from, from me and from us about like learning about the horses. And people are like, no, it's fascinating. Like one of our horses is in therapy right now. And people are like, we would love to learn all about that. Like the saltwater treatments, the swimming. And so that part is really interesting. So I think that as we unify that experience and we allow people to kind of get deeper and, and by the way, like on their own terms, right? I think there's nothing worse than a product that forces you into having a lifestyle that you don't want. And so instead it's like, Hey, we're going to make it really easy for you to, to be as deep in this as you want, but also to like, you know, be hands off when you don't, you know, don't want to be all the way in. So I think that that and trading is going to make it a lot of fun. And then we're just seeing like, we want to make the experience available and possible in the community kind of engaged outside of horse racing. Like I'm a lifelong horse guy and I don't just hang out with people at, at the, tr like the track. I do a lot of stuff with the horse community that all of our connections like trap shooting and having dinners and going to the bar. And so we just think that there's, there's a space for that as well to like, you know, live it. That's what I'm particularly excited about. Well, you guys, this has been awesome. You guys have such a great future. You've built such a great app. And, you know, I think your passion for this entire um, sport just really shines through in, in everything you do. So thank you for uh, bringing this great experience to the world. And thank you for coming on the podcast today. Of course. Thanks for having Thanks us. Thanks so much, guys. We appreciate you. Thank you, guys. Chat soon. Thanks for tuning in. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and give us a nice review for this podcast. It means a lot. And remember, you can find a transcription of this episode along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter at our website, alternativeassets.club. See you next time.